Where once for 
If you'd open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 1. I'm preaching through the book of Romans. We're over in chapter 2, where I will probably conclude that chapter this evening. But in my studies a few months ago, when we were in the early verses of chapter 1, I noted this wonderful, wonderful verse concerning the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have your Bible, look there with me, chapter 1 of the book of Romans, and I'm reading from verse number 4, just one simple verse. Normally here in our church, it's our custom to stand with the reading of Scripture out of reverence to God's Word, but I'm reading a very short passage, so I'll not ask you to stand this morning. Romans 1 and 4, and referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, it says He was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Now, I'll leave out a couple of the clauses there and read it with me like this. Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God 
by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The reason that his resurrection declares him to be the Son of God is that a resurrection is beyond any human ability. In all of the course of history, there have only been a handful of people who resurrected from the grave. Those who did were resurrected directly by the Lord Jesus Christ or in very, very rare circumstances by one of the ancient prophets of God. But it's extremely rare. Again, a handful of people in all of history. Christ himself only raised three people from the dead that we have a record of in the Gospels. And so this is the most rare of all human occurrences. And so Jesus Christ, that morning, when he came out of that tomb, he demonstrated that he was more than human, that this was, in fact, a supernatural event. If you believe in the resurrection, there's no other way to explain it. It is explained only by the hand of the Creator God. By his resurrection, Christ therefore demonstrated his mastery over death. He was the master of that great enemy of all of us that takes us away. In the book of Romans, further on in chapter 8 and in verse 21, there's a phrase that's an unusual phrase, the bondage of corruption. It refers to the bondage of corruption. What in the world could that mean? I think it refers to the fact that when sin came into the world, it put all of us under bondage, under slavery or captivity to sin itself. And now we are on this cycle of life, if you will, and we're going to end up in a grave in corruption, the bondage of corruption. You see, this cycle of life thing, we all are in it right now somewhere. Everyone is born. Everyone lives their life, and then everyone dies. And the Bible says the reason we die is because of sin, Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. The result of sin is death. And when Jesus Christ lay there in that tomb and then resurrected, he conquered not only death, but he conquered the cause of death, which is sin. And so this cycle of life goes on. It's everywhere true in all of life and every living thing and even in things that are not living. The scientists refer to it as the second law of thermodynamics, that every system left to itself in time becomes disordered and it deteriorates and eventually it dies. That's true of a tree, it's true of your automobile in time, it dies. I know, I got in my garage this morning, hit the button, and I was met with silence. And so the car died today for me. And that happens in everything. It be a tree, whether it be my car, whether it be 
the life cycle of nations who are born, they live, and they eventually die. And whether it be you or I, that bondage of corruption holds all of us. And the root cause of all of that is this is a fallen world, a sinful world. And so the resurrection proved four things at least. It proved that Jesus Christ was not just a man, he was God. The resurrection proved that Jesus Christ had power over death, unlike any other person in history. The resurrection proved that he also had victory over sin. Had he sinned one time in his life, he would not have come out of that grave, but sin had no place in him. It had no power over him. And because he lives today, he is the source of hope for us because he lives and we believe that we will live also. I want you to note the facts about the resurrection here as noted in the scripture. I told the people in the first hour, this is my 47th Easter that I've been privileged to preach the gospel here in this church. And so uh, I've told you everything I know about Easter several times over. <laughs> and I'll tell you the rest of it today. Okay, I'll tell you again. Because you can never hear it too much. With the skepticism poll now saying that 23% of the people under 40 in this country don't even know if there's a God or not, then we're in trouble in America. We have forgotten the most basic thing about our culture, and that is the gospel of Christ. Both the Jewish and the Roman leaders hated Jesus Christ. They plotted how they could get together and kill him. And so there was this conspiracy that met together and plotted his death. They hated him for different reasons. The Jews hated him because they considered him a blasphemer. He, they said he had made himself equal with God, and truth be told, he did. So in their mind, he was a deluded nutcase claiming equality with Almighty God. And they wanted to get rid of him. The Romans considered him to be a political threat. And so they noticed the great following that he had, the multitudes of people. He had become a force in society. And so they had their own political reason for wanting to kill him. So the Jews wanted to kill him because he had violated their religion, or so they thought, and the Romans wanted to kill him because he was a threat to the political order. So they arrested him late at night, probably around 10, 10.30, 11 o'clock at night when Christ was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they arrested him on trumped-up charges. They had to actually make up the story, which was, of course, untrue. And immediately they began a trial. They took him immediately to, before the high priest, and they had a religious trial, if you will. They, they accused him of blasphemy. And then they took him to Herod, the next level up in the Roman system. And then they went from Herod to Pilate. And then they came back again to Herod and then back to Pilate. And all night long into the wee hours of the morning, they were going from one venue to another venue, each of them a mock or a rump trial with uh, made-up evidence presented against him. 
They even got into trouble. Their plans apparently were not well laid. Some of the false witnesses that they had bribed contradicted themselves. And so the whole scheme was actually falling apart. But in spite of that, they convicted the Lord Jesus Christ at those trials. They sentenced him to death and they led him off to crucifixion. The timeline on those, that, and by the way, all those trials were illegal because Roman law forbade anybody being tried at night. That was one of the bases of their legal system. And so about nine o'clock in the morning, according to our time, they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. He was led from Pilate's judgment hall out to Golgotha where he was crucified. At about 12 noon, God blacked out the whole, the whole sky because a holy God did not even want to look at this vile, vile picture. Every single sin of every man, woman, boy, and girl from the day of creation until the end of all time, past, present, and future sin, was all laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, from nine o'clock in the morning till three in the afternoon, he suffered under the weight of that sin. The physical punishment you're very familiar with, you see it depicted in movies and so on. I think that the spiritual, psychological, emotional suffering was in fact more painful and greater than the physical sufferings of Jesus Christ. For the first time in history of the universe and in eternity, the pure and perfect and sinless Lamb of God was bearing the sins of the world. The Bible says he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And so here he is, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God bearing the sin of all humanity. He's there from 12 to 3, he's in the dark, he's in blackness. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he voluntarily gives up the ghost and he passes into his father's presence. He dies at 3 p.m. And then they're in this big flurry of activity, this big rush to get rid of the, uh, to, to get him off of the cross and to get him into the tomb and get rid of the whole thing because these are religious people. These are religious leaders. I mean, after all, it's the Passover. We got to celebrate the Passover and we can't have a dead man on the cross at the Passover. And so there's this last minute flurry of activity to get him buried. And they were very, very concerned about his body, that it be secured. Because they had heard Jesus say that he was going to rise from the dead. I don't think we emphasize that enough. Four times in the Gospels, Jesus Christ said, the Son of Man is going to go up to Jerusalem. He is going to suffer many things of the Pharisees and the elders. And then he's going to be crucified and he will rise again on the third day, speaking about himself. Four times, once in Matthew, once in Mark, once in Luke, twice in John, Jesus Christ predicted that he would resurrect from the dead. And they had heard him teach that. It was common knowledge. This guy says, he's, you can't kill me. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to rise from the dead. And so they feared 
that somehow they would pull this off. They feared maybe the, they didn't believe him really, but uh, they believed that maybe the apostles or the disciples would come and steal his body and claim that he had resurrected. If you'll go with me to the book of Matthew, chapter number 27, Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, there's a little passage there that I don't hear mentioned in a lot of these accounts of the resurrection and the death of our Lord. Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 62. Now, the next day that followed the day of the preparation, preparation for the Passover, the chief priests and the Pharisees came to Pilate. And they said, Sir, we remember that that deceiver, referring to Jesus, said when he was living here on the earth alive, after three days I will rise again. Now this is after Jesus Christ has been crucified. So they said, command therefore that the sepulcher, the grave, be made sure until the third day. And they, they understood perfectly, see? They understood. He had said he's going to rise on the third day. Make sure that the sepulcher is sure until the third day, lest the disciples come at night and steal him away and say unto the people, he's risen from the dead. And then the last era shall be worse than the first. And so Pilate said to them, okay, you have a watch. A watch meaning a guard, watchman. You have eight to 12, we don't know exact no, the exact number, eight to 12 Roman soldiers who are going to go out there and stay beside that tomb and make sure that nobody takes that body. Go your way and make it as sure as you can. And so they went and they made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now notice in your Bible, in chapter 28 then, you begin and it describes the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you come down to post-resurrection. Now we're after the resurrection. And we're in verse 11. And now when they were going, behold, some of the watch, some of these Roman soldiers that had been guarding the tomb came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all the things that had been done. In other words, they came and said, we don't know how the body got out of the tomb, but it's missing. Nobody can explain it. He's gone. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money, a big bribe unto the soldiers, saying, say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him while we slept. And so they paid the guards to give a false testimony that the disciples had come, in fact, and stolen the body. And if this come to the governor's ears, or if Pilate hears about this, don't worry about it, guardsmen, because we will persuade him and secure your safety. And so they took the money and did as they were taught. And this is commonly reported. Everybody knows about this. This is a common, this is common knowledge among the Jews at that time, that these leaders had paid off the soldiers who had guarded the tomb to give a false testimony about it. They still couldn't do anything about it. Their worst nightmare occurred that Sunday morning. Jesus Christ came, the body was missing, and he's gone. That's the facts as noted in the scripture. May I quickly 
remind you of the evidence for the resurrection as well. First of all, I remind you the tomb was empty. Now that tomb had been sealed. Probably cement had been put around that stone or a Roman seal. We're not sure exactly which was the case. And then we know that that guard was posted and we know that there the tomb was secured under threat of death of the men who were watching it. And yet somehow the tomb is empty. Nobody can explain how it was empty. The men guarding it couldn't explain it. We don't know what happened. And so they took a bribe to say that the disciples had stolen the body, but they knew better than that. The second piece of evidence is the absence of a body. If anybody could have produced the body of Jesus Christ, Christianity would have ended and you would never have heard of Jesus Christ. And remember, this is the Passover season that all the Jews have come and flooded into Jerusalem and the town is absolutely crowded. It would look like Myrtle Beach on the 4th of July. People everywhere. And how do you get rid of a body? You watch the crime shows on television, you know how many people have been convicted because it's almost impossible to get rid of a dead human body. And so they couldn't carry the body wrapped up in grave clothes through the streets of Jerusalem, somebody would have witnessed that. And yet, the body is missing. Nobody ever produces a body. Third piece of evidence, 500 plus eyewitnesses. Over 500 eyewitnesses. And the most credible people that we look back in history and think about, they are the eyewitnesses. Would you believe it if St. Peter would walk in the door and say, I saw him alive? Well, he did. Would you believe it if James, his half-brother, walked in and said, I saw him alive? Would you believe the Apostle Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament, if he walked in and said, and I saw him, I met him on the road to Damascus several years after this. He's alive the most credible people that you could possibly call upon the witness stand witness to the fact that they had seen him. And then you add over 500 more people. I counted up everybody that I could understand or that I could find in in the scripture. And the total I came up with was 518 people at least personally were eyewitnesses to the living Christ after the resurrection. Now, what lawyer would not like to have 500 people come and stand in line to witness for whatever fact it might be he was trying to prove in court? Do you think he would win his case with over 500 creditable witnesses coming and saying, this is a fact, we saw this happen? Why, he'd win that case every time, open and shut. Nothing could overcome the power of 500 eyewitnesses. Then there was the transformation of the disciples. Here they were cringing in fear after the crucifixion. So afraid, the Bible says they had gone indoors and they'd shut the doors and, and they were doing everything they could to avoid any public contact because after all, they might be looking for them next. 
And they had seen the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. They watched his crumpled body come down off of that cross. And now they're hiding out. And yet the day after their resurrection, they're transformed. They're different people. They are people who now have no fear of death. And the most important thing in the world to them is to give the good news of the gospel that Jesus is alive to everybody that they can speak to. Think with me for a moment. People will die for what they deeply believe in if they think it's true. We've watched in horror now as time after time people strap a suicide vest upon their body and blow themselves to bits. No fear apparently of dying. They tell me that there's so much explosives in one of those that when they go and look for the bodies, they can't find a piece any bigger than a 50-cent piece. Blows them to bits. They just evaporate in the air. Now, they're doing this around the world because they deeply believe that if they do that, they're going to be in Allah's presence and have 70 virgins and all that stuff. They must believe that with every fiber of their being though they are dying for a lie. But people will die for their beliefs if they think the belief is true. On the other hand, just be logical with me, people will not die for a belief if they know the belief is false. Would these men, all 11 of them, his disciples, all 11 of them died a martyr's death. They could have spared their life by simply saying, it's not true, we made it up. But all 11 of the surviving apostles were willing to give their life for what they knew to be true, what they had witnessed with their own eyes. The transformation of the disciples, the evidence, the empty tomb, the absence, nobody could find a body. 500 creditable eyewitnesses that transformed lives of the disciples. And then there's the growth of the faith. The growth of the faith, the Christian faith began to spread. In the city of Jerusalem, six weeks later, Peter stands on the street corner and preaches, and 3,000 people come and receive Christ as their Savior, convert from Judaism and law-keeping to grace and Christianity. A tremendous thing, just just that one thing. But but here, that's just the beginning, because after that, it says there are 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, a chapter or two later. And then it says that there are multitudes upon multitudes of people. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but reliable Christian history says this, that within five years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 50% of the population of Jerusalem had converted to Christianity. And the population of Jerusalem at that time was around 200,000 people. And so 50%, 100,000 people were now followers of Jesus Christ. How how do you you think that could happen? I, I think I know how it could happen. They were right there in the town and they had people saying to them, I know, I saw him, I was there. And and, and 50% of the population became convinced Christians within five years of the death of Christ. And then it spread across the Middle East. 
It spread then across Europe. It spread across Northern Africa. And in 300 years, in just three centuries, Christianity had rooted out so many of those cults and those pagan religions. In 300 years, the majority of the population named the name of Jesus Christ. That could not have happened had Jesus Christ not been resurrected from the grave with all those eyewitnesses spreading the truth about that. And because of the resurrection, we have America. We had America. And we have had what we call Western civilization because the teachings of the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus Christ, those teachings became the very basis for what we call Western civilization, for what we refer to as the Judeo-Christian culture that we have had. That this teaching that Jesus Christ came to the earth as God in human flesh, died on a cross and resurrected from the grave and is alive today, that became the basis of our ethics, our moral teaching. It became the basis for law, our law taken from the Ten Commandments and from many of the Old Testament sources and from the teachings of the Lord himself. Our values, our economy, I can make a good case for you that a capitalistic economy like we've enjoyed in this country has been the very basis or that it drew as its basis the New Testament and Christianity. Private ownership of capital, for example, is taught in the Bible. Private ownership of property. Things like a work ethic. The things that built America strong economically were coming out of this Christian faith that spread across the world at that time. I can make the case that for the first 500 years, there was no art except depictions of the Lord Jesus Christ in Christian scenes. I can make the case that all the music for hundreds and hundreds of years was totally devoted to the glorification of God and the honor of Jesus Christ. I can show you down through history that our educational system was based on the teachings of Jesus Christ and the fact that he was a living savior because the purpose of education primarily for hundreds of years was simply to teach people so they could read the scriptures for themselves. The evidences for the resurrection, they're so profound. In fact, lastly, the strongest evidence or the evidence is so strong, I should say, that it's convinced the most skeptical people down through the, through the history of our, the history of Christianity. The most skeptical people have turned to Jesus Christ. You may or may not have ever heard of Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf was an unbelieving Jew. He hadn't never read the New Testament, knew nothing about the gospel, totally uninterested. And yet Simon Greenleaf was a towering intellectual. He was recognized as one of the most skilled legal minds alive on the earth at the time he lived, which was back in the middle of the 19th century. Simon Greenleaf, when Harvard University decided to open a law school, Simon Greenleaf was the man that they chose to found the school and head it up and establish Harvard Law. His specialty was 
what constitutes evidence? What kind of evidence is admissible in a court of law? What are the qualifications for evidence that comply and comport with a court? He, in fact, wrote books on that. And he was recognized as the world's renowned legal mind on the subject of what constitutes evidence in a court. One day, a student challenged him, a student who was a Christian. He had made some remark about Jesus Christ. We don't know if he lived or resurrected and all that. He was challenged in his classroom. And so his interest was piqued, and he began to He began to study for himself. He made an exhaustive study of the four Gospels. He actually spent several years looking and analyzing every word of the four Gospel accounts. And in 1874, he wrote a book called The Testimony of the Evangelist. He analyzes from a legal standpoint what the Bible says about the resurrection and about Christ. And he said... It was therefore impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truth they had narrated had not Jesus actually been raised from the dead. In another place, he said, there is more evidence for the historic fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. You've heard of General Lew Wallace. He was a general in the Union Army during the Civil War. After the war, he was appointed to be the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. He wrote Ben-Hur, the story of the Christ. You'll probably see the movie sometime during the season. Lou Wallace was an unbeliever. But while he was serving there in Turkey as an ambassador, he visited all the museums. And he began to read and study the ancient manuscripts. And he visited the archaeological sites in the Holy Land and around the Middle East. And of course, while reading or while writing the book, he says, I had become a believer in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite stories of the skeptics is uh, a man named Frank, Frank Morrison. Frank Morrison was a lawyer, came from a wealthy family, and he was a skeptic. He hated Christianity, he hated God. He decided he would undermine the whole Christian faith and destroy it once for all. He was a brilliant, young lawyer. And Frank Morrison began to study and do research and look at the ancient documents and study everything he could find. His parents had enough money, he could travel and do the research. And Frank Morrison, in studying the research, got saved. He came to know Jesus Christ. He wrote a book that I've read a number of times. It's my favorite book on the resurrection. It's called Who Moved the Stone? You can buy it for 2 or $3. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you owe it to yourself to take it seriously enough that you read the evidence. Read how this man was converted to Christ as a result of studying the evidence on the resurrection. A lot of us today are familiar with the name Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell was a university lecturer himself, and he was a skeptic. And uh, Josh McDowell began to study the evidence, and he wrote this book, 
Evidence that demands a verdict. Evidence that demands a verdict. In other words, if you look at the evidence, you have to do something with it. That book has sold over a million copies. Now he's written a second book, a sequel to it. More evidence. It's not in the first book. More evidence. And then I like this book. Lee Strobel was a Yale University law graduate, a Yale lawyer. He was a great intellectual. He became a journalist, and he wrote for the Chicago Tribune for a number of years. And he decided to do a series of articles in the Chicago Tribune on Christianity. He was an unbeliever, a skeptic, virtually an atheist, agnostic at least. And so Lee Strobel began his research. And for months, he's writing this series of articles, and he's researching. And as in the case of the others, the more he studies, the more he becomes convinced. He becomes a Christian. He works for a church today as a teaching pastor in a church. And he's written a number of these books, The Case for This one is the case for Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, the resurrection is the most important thing that ever happened. Don't you think if you're not a believer today, you ought to give a little time and study? Wouldn't you give five bucks to a book and and study what some experts have discovered in life that might be the difference in eternity for you? Or do you just blow it off? Just that religion stuff. Well, I've given you these stories about these well-known people, these intellectual giants and so on. But I thought before I end this message, I ought to to talk about somebody, I call him Joe Pickup Truck. I'm a preacher, so I don't talk about Joe Sixpack. You're more familiar with that. But Joe Pickup Truck is my illustration. Just a common, ordinary guy like me and like you maybe one from the PD. Is the saving, transforming power of Jesus Christ still as great today as it ever was? Well, I know a guy at 17 years old, he became involved in teenage drinking. Don't blow that off as just boys will be boys, folks. Because the drinking led to him becoming an alcoholic within a year or so. And then pot the gateway drug, which always leads to something else, and then cocaine, and then other drugs, and then he became involved in trafficking drugs. Years went by. He left his family, and his life began to spiral out of control as so often it does. He ended up sleeping in the woods He said, for weeks I slept in my car, and then in order to run away from the authorities, I ended up sleeping in deer stands and duck blinds, preacher. He said, it had been a month since I'd had a decent meal, and it had been two weeks since I'd had a bath. And I just absolutely was at the end of the rope. But he had a brother who was a Christian. And he had a mother who was a Christian, real Christians, people who lived for Christ. People had a genuineness, the savor of godliness about their life. And he went to his brother. 
His brother said, let's go to church at the Florence Baptist Temple next Sunday morning. And so he came with his brother. I said to him, was that the first time you heard the gospel? Well, the first time I really heard it, oh, I was raised in church. I'd heard that stuff, but I wasn't even interested enough to think about it. I just blew it off. To me, it was like a fairy tale. I never studied it. I never thought about it. I, 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 I never read about it. It's just that stuff they do at church. But that Sunday morning, he listened because he was needy. And he was desperate. It was two and a half years ago. And when I gave the invitation, he walked out of his seat and came down forward. And we led him to the Lord Jesus Christ, one of our people here. He said, the moment I believe the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders. I truly believe that Jesus Christ came and lived and died for my sins and resurrected from the grave and that he's alive and he would help me. Stand up, Chip. He's over here this morning. I told that with his permission today. Three or four months ago, we hired him to work on our maintenance crew. Because it's so obvious God has changed his life. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ is still available today, ladies and gentlemen. Notice what Chip said. I was raised in church, went every Sunday. Didn't hear much of it. Wasn't interested in it. Never read about it. Never cared about it. Blew it off. Fairy tale mythology. And God had to bring him to the bottom. And he came. He heard. He believed. And the Lord changed his life. Won't you bow your head with me in prayer right now, if you will, please? There is a God so big no one can fathom. He holds this world and the universe together. Though he has all power, he was born to us a baby. So he could be called God. There is a key 